joined us tonight. Thank you for coming along to Upland Lives on Facebook um, Notes from the Hill page. My name is Mike Crane. I'm the author of Nature Snowdonia and I provide further training and CPD for mountain leaders and mountaineering instructors. As part of that, I run this Upland Live series where we just try to get a little bit more, uh, get to know the other people who are using the hill and a little bit of back, behind the background stuff as well. So my guest today is Richard Talbot. Richard is the Product and Marketing Director for Mountain Equipment, and we'll find out what that means in due course. But of course, he's a lot more than that. Uh, Richard is a, a summer mountain leader and a winter mountain leader. Um, he describes himself as a jack of all trades, um, dabbles in backpacking, mountain walking, climbing, mountaineering, fell running, ski touring, all sorts of things. Um, but at heart, he's a lover of wild and mountainous places, and it's those things that take him out there that he likes the best. So much so that he's bought his own bit of upland in the Yorkshire Dales, and he's now managing a plot of land in um, a traditional manner. And uh, he tells me he's as likely to be found reading a nature book as a climbing guidebook these days. I'm afraid I know that feeling. Um, fortunately, he does know a lot about the gear we wear as well. So uh, I'm going to bring Richard on now. Good evening, Richard. How are you today? Uh, we have a little light. I am I'm pretty well, uh, Mike. Uh, yeah, pretty well. Um, I, I apologize in advance for anybody listening uh, this evening. I am literally coming off the back of eight days having uh, been in bed with COVID. Uh, but uh, but I'm up right. And um, yeah, and we've had the first uh, we've had the first snow here for the last couple of weeks. It's all melted now, but the winter is on its way. So uh, reasons to be optimistic. S signals a little delayed there, Richard. Is that because you're in a remote place? Yeah, I think since uh, since Storm Arwen came through the other the other evening, our um, every uh, every utility uh, in Cumbria has been somewhat affected, and I think that's included our our phone signal here as well. So uh, I apologise if it's a little intermittent this evening. That's okay. We can hear loud and clear. So you're coming off the back of, um, oh dear, a bad illness. I'm sorry about that. You, are you recovering okay at the moment? Yeah, no, 100%. So um, it's probably the first time in a long time that I can remember having sort of seven or eight days complete. Um, got to spend a huge amount of time catching up on all the fabulous climbing and mountaineering films from the Kendall Mountain Festival, which is actually quite rare. I'm normally so busy, I rarely get to see any, but I've uh, I've indulged myself online over the last day. Probably watched, probably in excess of about 20 hours worth of films. And, uh, that, that is one of the good things about being ill, isn't it? Being able to sit and watch telly guilt-free. Okay, Richard, to start us off, you're obviously an outdoor person. Just tell us how you got into the outdoors, how you discovered the outdoors and how it's shaped your life. Well, I suppose it's shaped my life from a very young age. I was very, very fortunate. Um, I, I, I came into North Wales a lot as, as, a, as a kid. Um, my, my mum grew up in Snowdonia, she's a, a native uh, Welsh speaker, um, grew up in a little village called Trevru, just north of uh, Um And my dad was, uh, was 
passionate. He loved hill walking. Uh, he loved the mountains. Um, and Gov was a Duke of Edinburgh assessor and expedition leader for, for 25 odd years. So I, I was really lucky to get dragged out from a very young age. Um, and I was also really fortunate, I think, that my, my, my dad in particular had what I described as a reasonably adventurous spirit. Um, I remember being dragged everywhere, very often not on footpaths as a, as, a, as a young kid. And I think that really instilled in me that sort of sense of adventure, uh, to want to go and do interesting things and go to interesting places. Um, and I've always been obsessed by the mountains. I, I don't think it's necessarily been any one particular sport. As you said, I'm a bit of a jack of trades these days, um, but I've just always loved being outdoors, and I think that's never left me. Um, and equally, in every decision that I've ever made, and I sort of view my sort of path through life as a little bit accidental. I've not been one of these people who had a grand plan of where I wanted to be at a certain age, but I think at every point in every decision I've ever made, I've always had the mountains there in the background. Um, and whether that be what projects I did at school as part of an A-level, what ended when I left university and obviously where I ended up now. Um, it's actually been a more exciting way, really. You know, it's been about the journey rather than focusing on the end point. And it's just been a case of seeing where you've ended up. Are you aware I'm sitting in Trevor now? I wasn't. Oh, fantastic. Like, yeah. That's exactly where i am i liked it when i saw that richard i'm going to try not to interrupt you at all because um, there's quite a delay so you you were into the outdoors um you must have moved to university in a mountainous area and chose a subject that revolved around being in the outdoors <laughs> well um I did choose my university based on places to go climbing. That is true. Uh, so I was at Leeds University for, uh, for four years. Um, but that's about where any connection to the outdoors completely ends. Um, so my degree was actually in, uh, in broadcasting and politics. Um, so I guess that meant that I probably had some grand plan to be the next director general of the BBC. Um, that didn't quite pan out, um, partly probably because I didn't want to move to somewhere like London. And at the time, a lot of the jobs involved in that industry meant moving to London. Um, so after I graduated, I, um, I did what every um, aspiring climber wants to do, who's there trying to weigh up, applying for lots of jobs or being unemployed. And, and I decided to get a job in my local climbing shop. Um, and I never looked back. Um, I've got to say, it was the most fun I'd, I'd ever had. Um, it was like being at university. I was surrounded by people of my own age who were all young, enthusiastic, psyched for, for life. But I also got paid every week um, and just enough uh, money to go climbing and to go mountains every week. And, and whether that was trips up to North Wales or to the Lake District or summer trips out to go climbing in the Alps. Um, I did that for four or five, five years probably. Um, did a lot of climbing, went to a lot of interesting places. And ultimately that's what opened the doors to where I am now with mountain equipment. 
Oh, for those simple days, eh, where you just work, eat, sleep, go climbing. It's those are good days, aren't they? But uh, we do move on. So you developed an interesting kit, and, and what was the opportunity that came up with mountain equipment? Well, I, I for those who will uh, who know me, um, they'll, 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 anybody will recognise uh, the phrase that I've never been shy sharing an opinion um, and I think so much about product development is about having an opinion um, and whether that is um, how you uh, develop kit based on what others are telling you whether it's about how you help develop a brand and, and do that through the vehicle that is developing products um, ultimately I think the thing that I was really fortunate about was I joined ME um, in 2004, and it was a much smaller beast back in 2004. Um, we probably had a team of 10 or 12 people, and I was thrown in at the deep end, and I'm really lucky to be involved in a lot of conversations. You know, I actually joined Mountain Equipment effectively as a retail staff trainer, so I, I was with traveling all around the country, driving 50,000 miles a year, um, and going around and talking to retail staff about the kit we made um, and, and most of that was just based on my knowledge as somebody who's worked in shops and, and as obviously as a user as a climber and a, a mountain myself um, but I was just as I said really lucky in that at that time um, you were able to get involved in lots of conversations and in lots of projects that were going on in mountain equipment because we're such a small team and, and that really opened doors that I guess if you're in a bigger company for structured departments is actually a lot harder to do. So, although I joined as a staff trainer, I, I, I quickly um, became involved in, in what we call product management. And, um, and from there, I've then gone on to gradually be, I guess, promoted to higher levels from uh, to both product director and then eventually to product and marketing director, where I am now. It, it would be nice to think then that. Um in doing that job you're getting feedback from the stores and feedback from customers and you're feeding that back into to mountain equipment to to develop the kit is that how it works i um i, I always say that the, the art of good product development is um I, i've never worked in obviously in uh, in the intelligence community I always, I always have this it's a bit like being a good spy um, and that developing really good kit is just like being an analyst at CIA or somewhere like that. It's about listening to what's going on on the ground. Um, so the, the two things you need to, to be good um, at product development are, are these things, two ears um, and it's then having an opinion and having a background, a level of experience that allows you to analyze what you're being told, interpret what you're being told, and form an opinion as to how that's going to evolve itself into a particular product uh, or, or group of products that you're trying to develop. I think one of the things great strengths at ME has always been and remains so today is that we are a relatively small business in, in, in one sense. Um, and therefore, our ability to listen to our retail customers, our ability to listen to our end end consumers, the users who you know are buying jackets and sleeping bags or whatever, 
I've always believed is our greatest strength. Um, and that that's never really changed. I don't think it ever should change. Um, and I also think that, you know, that if we get one thing right for mountain equipment, it is making sure that we're fundamentally making kit that us as a team of people who work at mountain want to use. Um, because you often hear about companies talking about what they do and their consumers, like they're completely different ends of a spectrum. And of course, the reality is, is that I'm a consumer. I am a customer of mountain equipment, even though I work for them. I'm somebody who goes to the mountains. In that sense, I'm no different to you, Mike, or any different to anybody who might be that first time person going through the door of somewhere like Plaza Brennan on an introductory hill walking course. So just, just clear this up for me, Richard. We have um, designers and product managers and, and feedback. It's quite a complicated business, isn't it? Do you, do you have arguments with the designers? Do you say that's, that's not going to work? And, or do they come back to you and say, no, Richard, don't be silly, we can't do that? Is there, a, is there an interesting dynamic going on in there? Well, I, I'd like to think we uh, we don't have too many arguments. Maybe we, we occasionally have some heated conversations. Um, but but there is definitely there is definitely a dynamic. There is definitely I think um, everybody comes at it from a slightly different perspective. Um, so just just a really brief overview for the, those who aren't involved in product development. We we basically have a, a team of design design and development team that comprises of people who. Um, working what I would describe as product management. We've then got designers who most people can understand what a designer does. And then we have a team of and, and each, each of those people have a different level of responsibility and come at it from a different set of perspectives, really. I think from a designer's perspective, they're obviously there to, to draw and design a product, but they are there to challenge ideas and be creative. That's what you want out of a designer. The, I guess the product manager's job is to be the the voice of reason from that brand's or that company's perspective that they are the link that forms that go-between between what's going on in the mountains what's going on in the commercial world be that in a retail store or with our retail customers but also then with the end consumer as well um so we absolutely um will have um conversations about how a product's been uh, being led um and again you know you want to design it to challenge you it's it's not for them to, to make too many um decisions i guess um or second guess a decision that you might make you want them to be creative and to challenge you and of course not all of that will make it through to a finished product but some of it may, may do um, and, and as I always say, you know, it's, I guess it's a fair, well-known sort of statistic. You're, you're always sort of working on the 80-20 rule. You want to get 20% of it to not necessarily make it through to the market. Because if you get everything right, you're not. Uh, but if you can get 80% of it to get through to the market, then that's, that's a, pretty good, uh, a pretty good number. That, that that's great so so my mind is now spiraling away to you turn up at the office on the monday morning at nine o'clock and 
do you sit down at a desk or do you go and talk to people? What is there a typical day or, or not? What do you do when you go to work? <coughs> is there a typical day? Um, probably not really. Um, I, I was interesting when um, you sort of pre-warned me that you were going to ask me about you know, what does my job involve. I tell you what, I better just go and check what it says in my product description. Remind myself what's the <laughs> official line. Um, and I guess the official line for, for, for somebody in my position is that I'm there to provide strategic direction to our product and marketing um, um, But in the reality is, is that I actually can get drawn in, into a whole number of things. So I, I can do everything from being involved in writing product briefs for new products to looking at long-term product roadmaps where we're looking at overall product plans over the next three to five years the next minute i can be helping to write edit some copy for a for a, for a marketing campaign the next minute i can be dragged back to being to looking at reviewing a uh, an audit for a duck down supply chain um and back again to looking at a spreadsheet looking at the costings and pricing structure that we've got next season's range so it really is a very, very diverse role. I think it's one of the things that from being really open about it, I think is what makes perhaps the role I have such an exciting role to have. Um, because you do work across all departments within our business. You you interact with all levels of customer, from retail customers to factories to designers to all sorts of suppliers. Um, but at the same time, it can also I mean that it's incredibly hard to focus on one thing uh you are by the nature of the beast constantly pulled in in different directions it, it sounds amazing and i know there are complications so if i throw something out i know you can't have a piece of kit for every particular job for every particular environment um, so how do you balance the need for something somebody's going to wear in North Wales or the Lake District through the rainy season with something somebody's going to wear on Ben Nevis on those cold crisp days or maybe just trudging through a bit of wet snow to somebody who's going to wear something in the Alps? Is there, do you have to find a balance between kit that will work in different areas or, or is kit, do you try to make kit that will work in those contrasting conditions? I think the, the answer is that there is no one answer, Mike. I think the reality is, is that with certain products, we can be a lot more focused. Um, with other products, we inevitably may need to make more compromises. And uh, as you well know, Mike, everything that we do in our daily lives on the medicine side usually involves some form of compromise somewhere. Um, but whenever we're developing a product, we always start from the really, really simple focus of what is ultimately this product's core uh, use destined to be. So if we are developing um, a Gore-Tex jacket that is aimed at winter climbers, then obviously our primary objective is to consider what the conditions will be like in the most difficult conditions that the jacket is likely to face. And therefore we would be focusing on the environment 
the Scottish winter environment and, and everything that comes with it. Now, luckily, from a, 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 from a perspective of designing a waterproof jacket, we happen to know that if we can make a jacket work in an environment like the Scottish winter, then by default, it's probably going to work perfectly well in an environment like the Lake District or North Wales, or indeed somewhere arguably much nicer, um, like an alpine environment. Um, but with other products, um, you you might choose to take a, a more um, more of a compromised decision, and and of course that is solely dependent on a whole range of other mitigating factors that you have to then consider, and obviously what price the product's going to be uh, retailing for, um, what market is that product most likely to be selling in, and of course. We're talking here, obviously, in the UK, but we supply products to well over 25 countries. You know, we have big markets in Germany and Norway. Um, therefore, if we know that we're most likely selling a particular product in, for example, Norway versus the UK, that may skew how we develop that product because we know, obviously, that the environment in the Norwegian uh, uh, climate may differ to what it that may be in, in the UK um, or vice versa. It, it's amazing that you get it as right as you do. Um, I, I should say most of the outdoor companies do a pretty good job, but obviously we're talking about ME here and I have a lot of experience wearing ME kit and, and I know it does the job very well. So one of the other frustrations customers have that I know there's a good reason for is, is size and shape of kits, isn't it? So you know you have to have lots of different sizes but people come in lots of different shapes how do you get around that problem well um i i, I can answer this question as somebody who is obviously not the typical um shape you know I, I, yeah uh, again i i i'm a, i'm a relatively uh, thin uh, racing snake design of, uh, of human, um, and and I struggle sometimes with you know with getting mountain um, equipment product be perfectly well, and I, you know and, and you know that is one of the the natures of the beast, really, isn't it? That we do have to accept as individuals that we have to try and um, you know, certain things fit us better than than other other things. Um, we uh, we work with fit models, um, so. Um, we, we, we have, um, I guess, people who come into our um, who are who we try on prototypes with and they're measured. And, and they're the closest thing we have to um, our perfect um, sized human being, uh, for either a male model or, or a female model. Um, um, but even they are, they are chosen based on a set of dimensions, which we obviously have to decide upon. Um, now, we, we work on, reasonably standard um i guess industry guidelines really um but our subtlety of sizing will be different to another to another manufacturers um and i think obviously that also is that typically speaking and i can't speak for every outdoor company obviously but generally speaking um i would say that most outdoor companies or certainly most european based outdoor companies will have a slightly different sizing model to what you find is typical in the high street. Um, and I also know that most European 
brands will have a slightly different sizing model to what you would find from North American brands, for example. And that is obviously to some extent from the fact that obviously the consumer um, is that little bit thinner, that more athletic in the European market than it may be, for example, be in the North American market. But the key thing to stress is here is these are generalizations. There is no such thing as we all know as Mr. or Mrs. Average. Um, and so it is incredibly difficult. One of the biggest things that we get asked most often is why do we not do more sizing? Why do we not sizing above size 16 or 18 for women or indeed smaller than small or extra small for, for men? Um, the simple answer is, well, there's two parts to that, really. First is that we are increasing the number of sizes that we do make. In fact, we currently are, look, are looking to develop both size um, 18 and size 20, for example, of our women's products. Um, but the reality is it's based on commercial reality. And there is only at present for us a limited demand um, at either end of the spectrum in sizing. It doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're a man or, or a woman. Um, inevitably, there is a there is a core now core market that we have to aim for. Now, again, you might argue this is chicken and egg. If we don't make it, nobody can buy it. Um, but at the end of the day, we are at the mercy of largely of our retail customers. If they choose to not range sizes of products we make, it's very very difficult for us to keep those going. It just doesn't make commercial sense for us to keep pushing that um, yeah that product up, so to speak. That's, that's really interesting, Richard. It, it is a very complex business. I have some experience of retail myself, and I know those margins have to be borne in mind all the time. I want to ask you a couple more design questions before we move on to um, the environmental impact. Um, and I'll ask, you, I'll ask you three at the same time because of this, this delay we've got on. The, the first question, and you know this is coming, is about hoods. Somebody at some point seemed to think we needed a hood on our base layer, our mid layer, our thicker mid layer, our soft shell, and our hard shell. So if you can uh, answer the hoods question for me, please. And the other one is zips, and, and I know this is a design challenge, but often there's a bit of material behind that gets caught in a zip. What can you do about that, please? And then the final one is, what's the point of selling me some gloves that I can't get on with wet hands? Right then. Um, well, I can remember when I joined Mountain Equipment in 2004, and I remember one of the very, very first uh, meetings I went um, with Plaza Brennan. I can't remember if you were working there at the time, Mike, or indeed whether you were in the staff room at the time that I was there. But I very remember one of the very, very first things we got asked to use, um, which we didn't at the, at the time, was a hooded microfleece. Um, and um, that became a product that was, that was known as the shroud jacket. It was very, very successful for a, for a, for a number of years. That's since morphed into the Eclipse the jacket, what I'm wearing now. Um, and it has spawned, so it must, and indeed others, a multitude of other uh, hooded uh, garments. Um, what, what um, well, 
it's simply down to sales. Um, whenever we develop products, be that a fleece, midweight, lightweight, down jacket, soft shell jacket, you name it, um, nine times out of 10, rates of sales on hooded versions to non-hooded are about three to one. Um, so that massively skews the number of hooded products that make it to market versus the number of non-hooded garments which don't make it to market or that do make it to market but then don't stay in the market for a very long period of time. Um, and so you, like me, like everyone else, is there in winter with you know our hooded base layer on, our hooded midweight fleece on, then we go to put our soft shell on or whatever, and before you know it, um, we're all wearing five hoods. Um, so um, that's, I guess, it's I guess it's commercial realities really uh, that that drive that um, that drive that that reality. Yes. Um, I think with the answer on zips, um, well, I think I guess if anybody's a, um, anybody who is uh, over the age of probably about thirty-five can remember a time when everything we made had big external flaps. Um, and to this day, um, that is still the best thing that you could possibly do to make a garment waterproof. But obviously, they add weight, they add bulk, they make garments stiff to wear. And we're now so used to wearing garments that are extremely comfortable, that give us freedom of movement, that are nice and lightweight and packable. And we've just got conditioned to that. So we're left with what do we do to, to minimize that water entry or wind entry into a garment. And therefore, of course, you're then left with that internal flap, which may or may not uh, then bind on the zip. Now, there's a multitude of ways that you can come up with um, uh, or methodologies that you can employ to minimize that. We often talk about things called interlinings, but those are fabrics within fabrics, basically, that provide stiffening to, um, to an internal storm flap, for example. Um, and you can play around with those. You can obviously choose different materials and play around with the size. But ultimately, it's a balancing act, really, between stiffness, width, um, all of those things that then add to the weight to the cost of the product as well. It may seem a relatively small thing. Um, you may not always get it perfectly right. We obviously like to think that on balance, most of our products um, work pretty well. Um, but if I was to demonstrate this you know, on a video uh, call now, um, like you would obviously only expect that I would immediately go and jam the zip on something because that would just be an <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, um, so that's uh, so that's it. But I, I should stress, and I really can't stress highly enough. And again, it's driven by commercial demand. We would love to introduce someone that had external storm flaps. Again, um, it would help with all sorts of um, end of life uh, things, which we're going to come on to talk about um, later on. Um, but it would also make the best waterproof that you can no longer get. Um, but again, it's just based on commercial demand. Um, so uh, I think the last question was about gloves uh, and about wet hands. Um, well, I guess there's, 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 a, there's a couple of basic solutions to getting gloves on with wet hands. And the first thing to say is, as you know really well, Mike, as a, as a, as a winter mountain climbing instructor, there is no such thing as the perfect glove. 
Um, and despite all the marketing we or others may put out there, there is also no such thing as a truly waterproof glove. Our gloves are going to get uh, wet um, at some point, either through um, moisture coming from uh, the environment around us or from our own, our own bodies. Um, so there are all sorts of things that we can do um, to mitigate that. Um, first thing to say is you just need to get into the habit of wearing multiple pairs of gloves uh, in a winter environment. Now, I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, it means you buy more gloves. Um, but, you know, I probably, like you, Michael, you know, I will typically carry three, four pairs of gloves with me um, on a typical mountain day, and I may end up using all of those. I may end up using a couple of pairs. It just depends on the conditions. But in terms of the materials that we can choose, um, probably the worst material um, for clingy gloves damp hands is probably the most common material that is found in lightweight gloves and it's basically a micro fleece line um, again um, just binds on, on the hands very very easily and can be incredibly difficult to get on and off and especially then more so when you've got a close fitting uh, low volume glove um, that you might be using for winter hill walking or as a lightweight climbing glove um, whatever single best material that you can use well there's probably two really. in terms of the actual structure they're the same and it's pile so anything that's got a fiber pile be that synthetic or wool based uh, chunky knit lining on the inside um, will always work with a wet or a damp hand but that's probably about the only lining uh, on a glove that you can easily get on and off even when your hand is absolutely um, it also has a really big advantage as well, of course, is when it, when it is wet, it also still insulates as well. So it's actually a double win. So for anybody who's looking to um, buy a glove, sales pitch coming up, um, for, you know, for winter mountaineering, I would strongly recommend, if they're looking for a reasonably medium to high volume glove, I not being too light and dexterous, um, but they look at something with, uh, with some fine form of fiber pile or wool pile lining. Um, it often be a bit chunky to start with, but the other big advantage that they have is that once they use, they really bed in. That fiber pile basically compresses to form sort of nodules of material. Still has all the benefits of getting being easy to get on and off, um, but actually becomes very, very dexterous at the same time. So it definitely becomes your um, sort of like a good pair of slippers over time. Um, really, really functional, but also incredibly comfortable at the same time. That, thanks, Richard. That, that's really interesting. You've, you've cleared up quite a few things for us there. But of course, I'm afraid you've thrown up the, uh, the other issue, and that's the, the environmental impact. I know Mountain Equipment led the way on uh, ethical sourcing of down, and I, I might just leave that to one side, just because our echo is making the conversation a little difficult, because I know you want to say something about this balance between the carbon footprint and you know it's a it's a kind of the consumerism is part of the problem that we've got today isn't it um we like buying gear we want to buy more gear but we're also moving to a time where we're slightly feeling guilty and fleeces do seem to last an awful long time so how do you square that circle as a retailer that needs to sell more kit needs to reduce your carbon footprint but needs to stay in business. How, how does that all work moving forwards?
Well, I guess this is the, the real challenge of our, of our time, uh, really. You know, we, we've spent the last, what, 30, 40 years, but I think particularly in the last 25 years, where product has gone through a real um, huge development curve. You know, it, everything that we use has become lighter, stronger, better in so many ways. And, and, and if you look at any of the, the, the advancements in high standard alpinism, in endurance events, you name it, a significant chunk of that has come about because of advances in gear. Um, and of course, we fuel that, therefore, in terms of the, the marketing. You know, we've encouraged people to buy this new product because it's lighter. We've encouraged people to buy this new product because it's more breathable than something that's gone on before. You name it, every few years, there's been a new reason to upgrade your previous product. But you're right, that, that's obviously come at, uh, at a huge cost. Um, we've just, um, we've just uh, finished the first stage of a body of work we're doing with a company called Small World Consulting, which is actually part of um, Lancaster University. Um, uh, a spin-off set up by um, Mike Berners-Lee, a really well-known author, one of the world's leading experts on carbon footprinting. Um, the, the result of that won't really come as a surprise to anybody, but the, the upshot is is that really 85% of what we do as manufacturers, what we do from a carbon perspective, of course, given what we've been with, with COP26 and where we are with the Paris uh, uh, Agreement and, our, and, our, and sort of the worldwide pressures to limit global heating to under 1.5 degrees, carbon is obviously the, the big topic of the moment. Um, there's no getting away from it, though, is that 85% of our impact comes directly from the products we manufacture. Not from heating our buildings, not from the cars we drive as members of staff. It comes from the fleece jacket I'm wearing, the down jacket that you might have, the sleeping bag that you might buy from it. 85% of what we do is directly linked to the product. So, there are many, many ways that we, which we can mitigate that. Um, we can move to using recycled materials, for example. We can use to, we can um, work towards reducing uh, the impact of what we do in, in a multitude of ways. But the key thing to stress is that you are only ever going to reduce your impact. We're never, ever going to get down to zero. Um, it, it, Lots of people will claim to use the words carbon neutral, but the reality is, is that if we're going to produce things, it involves producing carbon. Um, and you can do whatever you like to mitigate that, to offset that, but you can't get away from the fact that you are fundamentally creating carbon and, and putting it into the atmosphere. And that brings us to a quite, I guess, painful truth, really. Um, we as a manufacturer can do our bit. We can, we can radically um, ramp up the um, use of sustainable or more sustainable, less impactful material. And that will go some way to, re to removing carbon uh, from the products we manufacture. Um, to give you a really good example of that, if I was to take a, a, a down insulated jacket and you were to pick one that had virgin 
uh, materials. So virgin outer fabrics, virgin inner fabrics, and virgin down. Um, and compare that to the identical product, but where the, all of those materials were recycled, post-consumer recycled uh, materials, we'd reduce the overall impact of that product from a, purely from a carbon perspective by about 20%. Okay, so it does make a meaningful difference. Um, but ultimately, the only way to, to completely take that carbon impact down to zero is to not make it at all. Um, now, obviously, we're in business, you know, the people we employ need us to stay in business. So we need to sell products. And that's where the balance lies. Now, we can do that by encouraging people to buy better, by encouraging people to think more about the products they buy, to think more about the manufacturers and the supply chains that go behind the product, and to demand more information from their retailers that they go to, and from the manufacturers and so I want to know more about how this product because it matters and therefore for consumers to then back that decision with with their hard-earned money and to say no I'm going to buy that product from that manufacturer from that retailer because they're doing the right thing um, but you can't ever get away from the fact that ultimately if we really want to make a big difference we've all got to fix sit here and think long and hard about how frequently we buy products. Do we need to buy the latest, greatest thing? Is saving another 20 grams really worth us buying that next version of a product compared to the one that I've probably got in my gear room that is still perfectly fit and functional? Yeah, it is difficult and it's full of dilemmas for us. You know, before we even start talking about transport and traveling to faraway places and all that sort of thing, we as a community do have some, yeah, a bit of nasal gazing to do, navel gazing to do, really. Richard, I want to ask you one last thing, though, um, because we are getting to the end of our time, and, and it's about what we can do personally. So you're probably not a perfect example of what people can do personally, because you've got quite an ambitious project going on at home, haven't you? What are you doing at home to, to save the planet? Well, look, I, I'm not perfect. And I don't, think any, I don't think you can expect anybody to be perfect. But I, th I think the single biggest thing that we can do as individuals is to not just keep asking, what is someone else going to do? Um, so I mean, I'm really lucky. You know, I, I live here on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales National Park. I'm in Cumbria. I'm in earshot of the Lake National Park, and, I, and I've got a little bit of outside space. So I, I've spent the last four years planting the best part of a thousand trees, mixed native broadleaf woodland. Um, I've also, we've also with my partner, we've, um, I shouldn't say it's not just me, my partner as well, um, have been working to restore what was ultimately um, overgrazed um, sheep farmland. Um, and are slowly converting that back to traditional upland um, hay meadow. Um, all by hand, we dyed it by hand mostly in the summer. Um, it's an incredible um, amount of hard work. Um, but we've done other things, you know, we've, we've, we've got rid of our oil heating, we've replaced it with biomass. Now again, it's not perfect, but 
you've got to get on with it and do something at some point, haven't you? Um, and, and I think that would be my, 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 you know, my, my, my line to anybody. You don't need to have acres to make a difference. You can rewild your garden. You can decide to not chop down that tree because it's spoiling the sunset of an evening. There's actually a value to it. There's so many things that we can do that actually, you know, amongst the 70 odd million of us uh, in this country, if we all did one thing, it would make a massive, massive difference to the nature, to the biodiversity, and ultimately to just the United Kingdom being a nice place to be. Um, we've just got to get on and do it, really. Richard, that, that's really inspiring. Thank you very much indeed for that. Now, I'm not going to come back to you now because of the echo, so I am going to finish there. And obviously you can find out more about uh, Richard to the Mountain Equipment website. You can find out more about me through mycrane.co.uk. And I just want to say a big thank you. But maybe just give us a wave there, Richard, because uh, we won't come back to you with the echo. And I want to thank you very much indeed for giving your time tonight. That's been fascinating, really interesting. Uh, and thank you for putting up with the, the delay. It's just we'll blame Storm and Wynn has, has given us the technical hitch tonight. Uh, and maybe we'll talk again in the future when uh, we're through all this, this weirdness. So thank you very much, Jochen Bauer. Good night. <laughs>